Pray with me, would you? Good Father, uh, it's with great thankfulness we gather freely to enjoy richly your presence, unimpeded by our culture's uh, interference. Help us to steward that well. I just pray that uh, I can get out of the way and you can have your way. Give us hearts open to what you'd have to say to us. Thank you for your word, both living and written. That's enough. Help us to hear from the inside out what your warnings are about. Thank you for your son who alone gives us access to joy. It's in his name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. You spent eight months or more talking about the Sermon on the Mount in detail. We're at the end of it. It's interesting to me that the Sermon on the Mount ends with four warning passages. This is the third one and maybe the most difficult one to manage in some ways. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's pleading with us to really join his kingdom. And he's telling us that it's easy to miss it in a world that has this cacophonous noise that keeps us from accessing true truth. For the Spirit of God is a still, small voice, not a loud, intrusive voice, but an appeal, a draw, an invitation to us. But he invites us from the inside out. So this morning, what I want to talk about is something that's hard to talk about, actually, but it's true for all of us if we'll just give it a little space. And that's about what goes on inside of us. I call it the interior world, and uh, I get to work with pastors a lot, and one of the things that I notice is a lot of pastors are performers, and they're good at performing, and they should be, and that's a gift. But if that's their source of identity, it messes up with their heart. Because God doesn't want your performance. He wants your heart. And that's what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. And that's what this warning is about this morning. But how do you talk about the heart and access it in some ways? So just work with me this morning, if you will, while we walk through this passage. One of the fundamental misunderstandings of the first century world they had in regard to Jesus was that he had come to stir up an outward political revolution. I think people thought that Jesus would exercise power and control over Rome or over the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they would uh, disrupt the cultural artifacts that go on in the world, and it would be an easier life for them as a result. And just a couple of weeks ago, Aaron stood up here and he said, this is a challenge, this is hard, this is difficult, this is... This is not easy. Well, part of it is because we confuse the outside with the inside. So one of the messages I hope you get this morning is the order matters. Inside first, outside second. 
And we're forever trying to work it the other way. We think if people will change behavior out here, it changes the heart. It doesn't. Jesus says so, both in Matthew and Mark and a couple other places. And he says, it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what's inside. And Jesus is here, if you are going to follow him, to give you a new heart, a new way to think, a new process. And so he's saying, this is not about an outward political revolution, but the kingdom is essentially within. It's inside of you. And that Jesus is still a king whose kingdom is the heart. It's inside of us. And I think that's what Jesus is standing and warning us about. Don't get caught up in thinking that this is going to be an external exercise. That's religion. Because it has it backwards. It gives you a list of things to do. Actually, the commandments uh, come second. But they're easiest to teach from a teacher's point of view. I can teach you commandments because I can have some metric to measure them in some way. I can figure out whether you're doing them or not. But God's not primarily interested in the commandments. He's interested in your heart because if he's got your heart, he gets the commandments with them. If it goes the other way, if you try to do the commandments to get to your heart, it's backwards. It doesn't work so good. So Jesus starts in chapter 4. And he announces what he's going to teach on. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we sang about it this morning, and we read the prayer. And the prayer has, thy kingdom come. So we're singing about it, and we pray about it. Now the question is, what does that look like in us? And why is Jesus ending this sermon, this great sermon? You'd think he'd end it on a crescendo, but he's not. He ends it on four warnings. So let's pay attention to him. This is the text this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Two things I'd like you to mark out. The word Lord literally means no rival. If somebody's Lord in your life, he has no rival. And that, that's why addiction is so devastating to people because addiction becomes a Lord in your life. That's why those variables that we get attached to that aren't God himself anything less than God himself, winds up being some kind of a distraction in some way. The second thing here, Jesus said, if you do the will of my Father, so we're going to come back and talk about what is the will of God really about. I used to teach a class on decision-making and the will of God, trying to figure out what God's will is for this decision or that decision. And there's a lot to be said in scripture about decision making and how important that is and how to go about doing it. The will of God is not really all that abstract, if you will. It's actually accessible to us pretty easily if we'll pay attention. And one of the things that God says to us through Paul in Romans 8, he says, it's his will that you conform to the image of his son, that you be like Jesus. Now, I've sat in church my entire lifetime, and I've heard that phrase, and so this morning I want to try to 
poke at maybe moving a little more in that direction. So the second part of this, verse 22 says, many will say to me on that day, this is Jesus talking to us, Lord, Lord, same terms, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's pretty stark. He says, I don't know you. Let me give you just a simple example maybe this morning. Most of you didn't know me before I stood up here. You're going to know me better at the end of this. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, at least you have access now. I don't know most of you. That's kind of essentially what Jesus is saying to them. Here's what's fascinating in Scripture. Uh, Paul says this. He says, if you love God, you are, listen to this, known by him. Paul later in Galatians says something like this. Uh, I'm glad, he said, that you know God. And then he stops and he says, whoops, or rather that you're known by him. What you want is you want God to have access to your heart. You want God to know you. In John, talking about sheep, he says, I know my own, and my own know me. So Jesus is saying, here's, here's some people who are saying, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done for you. We've prophesied. We've cast out demons. We've done miracles. You would think that's the very best thing that Jesus would praise, right? He actually dismisses it summarily and says, whoops, you're making a mistake. So here's the mistake I think he's making, we're making. And I think that's the mistake that the people who were saying this to him were making. And I call it self-deception. Now, self-deception is a little difficult to explain, so let's see if we can gravitate to it. I think we all have a natural tendency to be self-deceived in some way. And it's tricky because it's inside and nobody knows whether you're deceived or not. And so how do we ferret that out in some way? There's a story told, an actual history of World War II when the Allies were driving toward Berlin and Russia was coming toward Berlin from the east, we were coming from the west, and the first concentration camp in Germany that was liberated by the Allies uh, was a, in a town called Ordoff, and it happened on April the 12th. Now, if you know the, anything about war in Europe, it ended about a month later in May 1945. So the first liberated camp by Americans was this camp, and it held about 11,000 prisoners, and the prisoners were not primarily Jewish. They were other people that didn't fit into the Nazi mentality and they had 11,000 of them. They wanted them to work for them. And so when the Allies got close to that, they abandoned, the Nazis abandoned the camp. And so when the Allies finally got there and Eisenhower was one of them, he walked into the camp and he was stunned by it. And then General Patton came and General Patton actually threw up at what he saw. He couldn't, he said it, the stench was too much and there were 20 or 30 bodies in some building and dead people around and they, because they had to leave so fast they couldn't cover up their stuff. So Eisenhower said, uh, this is the problem. You know, he said, for, for a long time, people have asked, why are we fighting this war? What for are we fighting the war? And he says, we may not be able to answer that, but here we can answer, 
what we're against because it's clear now. And then he said, go into town and find out what this town that's close to this concentration camp uh, knew about this camp. And he said they kept asking people in the town, and the people in the town said, well, we don't know. We just know it's a Nazi camp out there. We don't know what's going on. Eisenhower said, I don't care. He said, what I care about is that something happens now. And he said, I want every man, woman, and child in that town to come out to the camp tomorrow and they're going to bury all the dead. They're going to dig graves and bury all the dead. The day after that, the mayor and his wife hung themselves in their home. And they left a note, and the note said, we knew, but we didn't know. That's self-deception. Sometimes we know, but we don't know. We pretend. We betray ourselves in some way. So here's the rule. You can't be self-deceived without first betraying yourself. Let me see if I can give you some examples of that. Uh, I'm married. Been married for 58 years. Still learning. Still learning. Still a challenge. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, we remodeled a house in Lakewood, and I built a rail around a stairs, and my office is downstairs, and I do the best work in the dark anyway, I think, you know, just, I don't know, downstairs. And so Nancy has some trouble going up and downstairs, and, or she didn't like it, or I don't know what, but anyway, it doesn't matter. She would put things on that rail, and I would know that they needed to go downstairs. Now, if she was been snarky, Maybe. I can't imagine her being snarky, but since I have the microphone, I can get away with this for a minute. She, she would, uh, you know, I'd, ha I'd have to make a decision when I was at the top of the stairs. What should I do? Any ideas? Of course. I should take it downstairs because that's the loving thing to do, right? I, and, and I know it's the loving thing to do if I'm caught or if I'm exposed, but what if I'm just by myself and nobody's there? Maybe Nancy's off shopping and this stuff is sitting there and so she wouldn't even notice. I wouldn't notice. So here's the, here's the little key I want to give you. Can you work out of the best in you? And if I gave you the freedom to run around in my life for a week, or you gave me the freedom to run around in your life for a week, and we just observed one another, and then we'd stop and say while you're driving, maybe, and say, hmm, what's the best thing to do with that driver that just cut you off? Or that irritation that happened in the store, or whatever. I bet you could stop and tell me almost every time what the best thing to do would be. Do you do it? Why don't we? Because the first step into self-deception is self-betrayal. And what I'm trying to illustrate is self-betrayal. Let me give you another example. Another example is, uh, have you ever had to say you're sorry to somebody in a relationship for something that you've done? You're not human if you haven't, by the way. So I'm not asking for a show of hands, I know. And I get caught all the time, and I don't like to be wrong. I mean, that's just really irritating to me. 
And then, and then I watch kids sometimes, and sibling rivalry shows up, you know, and kids are pretty universally violating of one another, especially if they're siblings. And so a parent will say, you shouldn't do that to your brother. Tell him you're sorry. Say sorry. And a kid will say, sorry. <laughs> now, do you trust that? I don't know how many times I've said that kind of sorry to my own wife, who I claim to love, but I'm not working out of the best of me because I can't get to remorse and brokenness and realize the responsibility I have and take ownership for the hurt that I've caused. By the way, you cannot be in any relationship, marriage or otherwise, that you're not going to cause some hurt. Why do you think forgiveness is given to us as probably the greatest single resource for relationships on the planet? We misuse it, we misunderstand it, we misapply it. But here's a place where maybe you can think about it a little differently. If I ask you, what would be the best thing to do in this setting? I bet you would know. And I bet you would know if you're following Jesus because he has given you some pretty significant things to work from. And I wrote them down here this way. I think when you become a believer, you, you are a new creature, Paul says. You come from spiritual death to being alive. You have ingredients added to you that didn't, you didn't have before. Things like purity. That sounds weird, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you have access to purity in your heart because you have a new heart. You don't have a divided heart. You don't have two hearts. You don't have a deceptive heart. You have a new heart. You can trust that heart. But you see, most of us still think we have to earn it. So we go to Jesus with, I cast out demons in your name. I did miracles in your name. What are we doing? We're doing it backwards. All he's asking for is our heart, our interior world. Are the best of us. Can you tap into that? He gives us a different disposition, a different way to think about things, a different way to understand life here. He gives us a different identity. It's not based on posing or winning or strength or intelligence or money or position or power. It's based on character and personality and being, and he says, I died for you, not for your service. I don't need your service. What I need is you. Then I have your service. But if it's you try to earn it backwards, you've done it backwards, and it's that piece that messes us up. Ecclesiastes has a summary statement that says something like this. It says, uh, fear God, when everything is said and done, fear God, do his commandments. Well, you know what I think? I think we have trouble keeping things in that order, being in relationship with the holy. The word fear there means what you should feel in almost any relationship you're in. You have no control over the other person ever, by the way. I've tried for 58 years, actually 63. 63 since our first date, which was Halloween, 1959. So, where were you? Anyway. <laughs> well, this will tell you something about our relationship. We sang at a Youth for Christ rally, and then we went to a haunted house. 
<laughs> and it's kind of been like that ever since, actually. Well, so, so what does working out of the best in me look like? You see, for a long time I thought that I had a basic assumption that you, people I'm teaching to, really didn't want to obey God's will. It was my job to coerce you into doing what you fundamentally didn't want to do. I call that the eat your vegetables approach to ministry. You may not like what God commands, but go ahead and do it anyway because it's good for you. But if you work out of the heart that God gives you, the new heart, the redeemed heart, the good heart, you'll realize the key to the Christian life is not obedience, but it's centrally in relationship with a holy and loving God from the heart out. But the easiest way to tap into not being self-deceived is to make sure you're not self-betraying in the first place. And it's little things. I mentioned two. Saying you're sorry. One of them. Being able to access that part of your life. In the Old Testament, it's repeated by Jesus later in Matthew 15. It says this, And the Lord said, Because his people draw near, with their words, honor me with their lip service, but they remove what? Their hearts far from me. And their love for me is tradition learned by rote. That's religion. God doesn't want you to be religious. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And in relationship with him means that you have to pay some attention to what's going on in your own soul. My wife's not responsible for what goes on in my own soul. So let's look at Romans chapter 12. This is Paul applying the gospel message. And he says this. He says, look, I urge you, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God. So the first thing he says is, your whole life belongs to me, the carrier of your soul and the carrier of your heart and the carrier of your mind is your body present it yield it to him trust him in some way and then he says this is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world and I'm going to stop there for a second and I'm going to tell you HUD's view of being conformed I thought being conformed to the world meant you didn't go to Las Vegas we can talk about that later maybe but uh, I did for a long time. I thought, well, that's Sin City. Who, you know, I got to stay away from that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, conform to this world is your view of reality. I grew up here in America. If I've traveled a lot overseas, and all of a sudden I'm in a different culture, and they see the view of their view of the world is quite different than mine. So when Paul's talking here, he's saying, don't trust your own history. Don't trust your own experience. Don't be conformed to that. Why? Because he's calling you to be conformed to something bigger, something better. And he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation is the Spirit's job. Renewing your mind is your job. And when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that's what the word repent means. It means to transform the way you're thinking. Transform the way you see things. So what I want to appeal to you this morning is that look at what Paul now says 
in the same passage. He says, so that you may approve what the what will of God is. And that's what Jesus just said. If you want to do this well, you've got to know what the will of God is. And here it is. What the will of God is, which is that good, acceptable, and perfect. So good, acceptable, and perfect will of God means that you will conform. Here's the word again. Conform to the image of his son. We sing with gusto these songs about the Lord delivering us from death, giving us access to real life in the midst of whatever circumstance we're in. And it's almost like, feels like sometimes that God's indifferent to our circumstances because what is primarily at stake is this interior world. Okay. I have two quotes at the end of this. And it has to do with order again. And I think maybe what happened in the garden originally was things were missequenced. Things were taken out of order. I just gave you some order a minute ago when I said, fear God and do his commandments. If you try to do his commandments in order to gain a fear of him, it doesn't work. It has to go the other way. I want Nancy to have my heart. Why would I not say I'm sorry when I, when I hurt her in some way? Even if I didn't intend to, if the impact is there, I still need to take ownership of it, don't I? So here's the quote. We don't change our living to become more godly. I'm not making that appeal to you. That's exactly what Jesus is warning us about. He's saying, you can... Do these godly things. Cast out demons. Do miracles. But you know what he says? He says, I want your heart. Don't change your living in order to become godly. We change our living because we have been made godly. Different order. That's all it is. Understand the order and you will avoid the very mistake that these people, when they came to Jesus, were doing. After the entire sermon, they still felt it was an external, internal process instead of an internal, external process. You're going to have a chance now to listen to a song that has to do with your heart. And I want you to sit, if you can, and eliminate distraction, whatever you have to do to do that for you. For some, it's closing your eyes. For others, leaving them open. For some, you know, whatever it takes. But I want you to listen to the words of a song because it has to do with your heart. And it has to do with what I think God is calling us to. And he's asking us, let me have, let me have that and I will tell you the truth about it so that you can increasingly work out of the best in you. You'll have less difficulty fighting that. You'll have more openness to say, here I am, Lord. I want to do the best. Whether I'm driving or standing in a store line or deep in a relational tussle with my boss or my mate or my kids, keep asking myself, what's the best thing to do here? And I bet if you wait just a minute you will alter your choice and you will be more likely to be a participant in the kingdom as a result.
Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you that you didn't end this sermon by avoiding a really hard concept of how easy it is for us to misrepresent what you're teaching, what you're saying to us that we are designed to be yours and be in league with you as we live in this world to be co-participants in the grace of life and we get to rule and reign in this world and, and, it's, and it's out of joy we can do that. The same kind of joy that allowed you to go to the cross allows us to live in a world that's unfair, patently unfair. Our lives aren't going to be fair. We know that until heaven. But now we can still choose to do the best because you built it into us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what that's like. Thank you for your grace sufficient. And we offer back to you gratefulness for your son's work on our behalf. That was enough. We never have to ask for more. You already lavishly, abundantly give it to us. Help us to now live in our world in a way that brings glory to your name and joy to our souls. We pray this in the strong and gentle name of Jesus. Amen.
Romans 10, 11 in the message says, Scripture reassures us, no one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. I don't know where you find yourself here as we hear those words, but I wonder if for some of you, you feel a tug toward God, or maybe back toward God. It might feel like your heart is fluttering, or your fingers are tingling, or tears are making their way to the surface. That is no accident. In order to give our heart to the Lord, the first step is to say, Lord, I give you my life. Scripture says that when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, that we are saved. Our hearts safely in the Father's hands. So whether you're new to Jesus or been following him for decades like HUD, would you, um, would you pray this with me? Father, we offer you our hearts. Every crack and crevice and aching space and all of the hope that lies in our hearts, Lord. Would you help us to see you more clearly, to trust you more wholeheartedly? We believe that you are the Son of God, Jesus, and that your resurrected body means life everlasting for us. So would you do what only you can do, Spirit, in us? It's not by power, and it's not by might, and it's not by religious activity, but by your Spirit alone that we can put our hearts in your hands. So we do that today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen.